It was a Tuesday evening, spring of 1977. I know it was a Tuesday evening because that's the night that my parents religiously and without fail would go to community group. And I suppose they thought that I would spend the evening playing football or street hockey or in their dreams doing my homework, but not likely. I was 14 and I was in love. And the minute the four-door gold Dodge Monocle left the driveway, I was on my 10-speed bicycle, bearing down for the seven-and-a-half-kilometer ride to the home of a young girl named Bonnie who had captured my heart. And in God's sovereignty, her parents also went to the same community group. <laughs> and so the Tuesday night 20-minute ride down Warman Road and 33rd Avenue in Saskatoon was a common ritual, but this night was different. See, I had written Bonnie a poem, and um, I was counting on her spiritual discernment to realize that that was my romantic way of asking her to be my girlfriend. And uh, I just so happened to have the original of that poem um, preserved 43 years later, and there's not a chance in the world I'm going to read it to you. <laughs> Girls, uh, gal, <laughs> I'm doing you a favor. Gals, if, if, you would re, if you would hear that poem and you realize that this level of linguistic art is possible through a mere human male, you would never again be satisfied with that roses are red, violets are blue, some poems rhyme, but this one doesn't level of poetry that you're probably getting. But I will be, however, offering an online coaching uh, seminar on poetry, and it's uh, Pastor Romance at thisisvillagechurch.com. All that to say is I'm a bit of an expert when it comes to poetry, which will be very helpful as we continue our journey and pilgrimage through the Psalms. And my name's Ken. I'm one of the pastors here at Village Church. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles or your phone to Psalm chapter 6. The other takeaway from my little story, I'm not really an expert on poetry. You probably figured that out. But the other takeaway on that story is the importance of going to a community group because it increases the likelihood of your children finding a godly spouse because that 14-year-old girl happens to be the Bonnie that I attend church with, live with, and I'm actually married to. But seriously, this, this week would be a great week to, to get involved in a community group. In fact, you leave here, you go out into the, the lobby, and you look for a Connect desk. We can probably get you into a community group this week because there's information, there's some passages that I'm not going to be able to unpack in this message. You'll be able to unpack and apply in your lives in your community group this week. We would love you to be part of that. Psalm chapter 6 is written during the early years of King David's ministry. King David was the most powerful. He was the leader of God's people and the most powerful person on earth at the time. It was likely written in his late 20s, early 30s. Psalm chapter 6. We've already heard the first nine verses through the worship segment. Um, and, and in this psalm, there's no warm-up. There's no sugarcoating. David gets right to the point. He's in rough shape. His body hurts. His soul aches. He wasn't sleeping. He had no energy. He had lost his vision and was feeling despair. If he had gone to a counselor, he would have been diagnosed in clinical depression. 
going to read verses 1 to 4 again. Oh, Lord, rebuke me not in your anger. Check out, check out his plea. Rebuke me not in your anger. Don't discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, for I am languishing. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul's also greatly troubled. But you, O oh Lord, how long? Return to me. Deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. There's no real unique Hebrew words there that don't mean what they say. So there's nothing to unpack, perhaps except that where it says, turn to me, Lord, he was actually saying, return to me. See, David had once been close with God. He had a personal relationship with God. And he was feeling the distance. Maybe someone invited you here. You don't have a personal relationship with God, so you wouldn't be able to say return, but you're wondering what it would be like to be close to God. You know, I think everybody prays. I think everybody, whether you're a Christian or not, hopes that there is someone out there that knows them intimately and has answers to some of the challenges that they struggle with. If that describes you, you'll actually have an opportunity later in the, in the service to invite Jesus to be a personal Savior and have a relationship with him. But it's the occasion of this psalm in which God's message to us lies this morning. David has sinned. David has sinned. And he comes to the point of recognizing, realizing that the physical and emotional suffering that he is experiencing is a direct result of his sin. David is being disciplined by God. And here's a fundamental difference between he and us and it's part, it's a very important lesson in, the, in, the, in this message. So let me ask it, let me teach it in the form of a question. When you are sick and or in physical pain, have you ever considered sin to be the source? Or do you just turn to Tylenol cold? Or the doctor? When your intimate relationships are strained and there's tension, have you ever considered that sin might be the source and not your spouse? When your family begins to fall apart and your children go AWOL, are no longer interested in talking with you or talking with God, have you ever considered that possibly sin might be the source? Maybe not even sin towards your children. Maybe not even sin towards your spouse. See. 1 Peter 4, 7 says, Our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking to whom he will devour, and he looks for little chinks in our armor, and sometimes I, in my own life, can have personal sin in my own life, things that God has asked me to do that I'm not doing, or things that I'm, I'm not doing that God has asked me to do, things in my life, and Satan gets a foothold into my life, and he can mess up other areas of my life. It's not always a direct correlation, the sin in this area. Satan will do anything he can to get a foothold in our lives. When you begin to fall into despair or depression, have you ever considered sin to be part of the problem? Or when you feel distant from God, have you ever considered sin to be part of the problem or perhaps the problem or the source? Now hear me very clearly. I am not saying that all of those situations, I am not saying that every time things fall apart in our life, I'm not saying every time you're sick, I'm not saying every time you're in despair, I'm not saying every time a child walks away, I'm not saying every single time sin is the source. There are other factors. There are biological realities. There are other people involved. Sometimes life just happens. I'm not saying that it's always the source, but have you looked there? There's a fundamental difference in our North American postmodern culture, post-Christian culture. Sin is the last place we look, whereas in the first century and in Bible times, it was the very first place they looked. 
In John chapter 9, uh, John, John chapter 9, I should just read it. The Bible says it better than me. Uh, as he passed, as Jesus passed, he saw a man born uh, blind from birth, or his disciples, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? They assumed it was sin, the, the physical ailment. They assumed it was sin. And Jesus said, neither this man nor his parents sinned. In this case, this actually occurred so that the power of God might be displayed in his life. And then we preach, see, it's not because of sin. No, Jesus was just saying in that particular case, it wasn't sin. Everyone assumed it was sin. James chapter 5. If there's anyone of you suffering, let him pray. That's interesting. Let him pray. Prayer is often the last. And we know this is true. You know it's true. Is anyone suffering? No, we go to Tylenol. We go to Advil. We go to the doctor. We go find a remedy. Anyone who's suffering, let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is any one of you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save or heal the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. God wants us to walk in health. And when sin is in the way, we've got to deal with the sin. The prayer of a righteous person is great power and when it's working effectively. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we're talking about communion, which we're going to practice at the end of the service. Communion, the Lord's table, coming around, gathering around what Jesus did for us. It actually says, Wherefore, therefore, whoever eats, whoever, sorry, therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have actually fallen asleep. My point is, when life and health and relationships begin to fall apart, that's an excellent time to come to, to God and not fear Him. Come to God. We fear God is, is, is greater than us, yes, but to come to God and ask, God, is there anything out of whack in my life? Have you been speaking to me about something that I've been ignoring? and take inventory of our lives. Psalm 139, another Psalm of David, search me, O God, know my heart, see if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. Let's you and I talk about sin for a minute because anything offensive way is talking about sin. Let's just talk about it for a bit. It's not a, it's not a popular topic. It's certainly not a politically correct way to enter a new year. In fact, you might think we talk about sin in church far too much, but the truth is we talk about sin a lot less than you think about it and talk about it. You just call it something different. We call sin mistakes, or my bad. If you're a golfer, you call it a mulligan. Call it a struggle. Uh, one time, uh, a, a woman who I'm related to through marriage, uh, <laughs> her and I were talking, and I said, so you made a mistake, and she says, no, I didn't make a mistake. My mind just got mixed up. We just like to call it different things. Um, we, we, we live in a world where everybody feels guilty, but no one sins. You ever notice that? And, you know, just, just so we know what sin actually is, it simply means missing the mark. See, God created us. He loves us. And he knows and believes that certain attitudes and behaviors are going to be destructive towards us and our other people. So he calls them sin and says, stay away from that. That's all sin is, missing the mark. It's not some condemnation thing. It's just This is a set of behaviors and attitudes that's going to be healthy for you, your family, those you love. This is a set of behaviors and attitudes and, 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 and thoughts or whatever, actions that are going to be unhealthy for the way you live. Uh, so don't do them. It's kind of like making a poison smell bad so kids don't drink it. 
It's the same kind of a thing. And if we're not talking about our own sins, we're talking about the sins of other people. I can't believe what he or she did. You ever done that? They're talking about the sins of other people. Or you're driving and someone cuts you off. You, what do you feel? You feel like giving them the finger, but you're a Christian, you can't, so you give them the whole hand. <laughs> or, or gossip or blaming other people for how unhappy you are. Or, or, you know, you always, you never, you're the problem. I mean, we talk about sin all the time. We just want to call something different. We talk about sin. We just want to talk about the answer. In this case, in Psalm chapter 6, David doesn't actually specifically mention the sin. It's not his sin of Bathsheba, by the way. It's not his adulterous affair yet. Talks about that later. Why didn't he mention it? I mean, David doesn't actually write down the particular sin. Why not? Well, why do you not? Why do you not write down the specifics of your sin? I mean, we all sin, right? If I said, how many of you sinned last week? You'd probably all put up your hand. Okay, let's pass around a microphone or pass around, let's, let's text the sin in to Pastor Mark. No, we don't like to do this. Why don't, we like, why don't we do that? Why didn't David write it down? Why don't you? Let me take a guess. Because you don't want us to know. You'd like us to think more highly of you than that. Or, or maybe you just don't want to admit it yourself. We don't want to actually face the specifics because it just makes us feel a little worse. It actually makes us feel guilty. Which, did you know guilt is a gift from God? Guilt is a gift from God. It tells us we did something different, or sorry, did something wrong, and he wants us to mend it. Shame is when we don't deal with guilt. Shame is Satan's distortion of guilt. Now, there's true guilt and false guilt. False guilt is when someone else does something to you and says it's your fault. That's false guilt, and we don't want to submit to that. But true guilt is just, I did something bad. I feel bad. That's to actually draw me to God, amend my behavior, and go in a healthier way. Perhaps it's a mistake that we don't take the time to actually be specific in our sins. I'm going to just walk through three sins that are typical. The one is, and I remember, I remember having a conversation with actually a friend of mine who a number of years ago was struggling with pornography, and he, and he, and he said he was struggling and he wanted help. And I said, well, tell me exactly what the struggle is. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, what exactly are you watching? What exactly are you doing? Did you walk into a bookstore and see a pornographic magazine, old school kind of thing? I mean, what actually, he says, do I have to tell you? I said, no, you don't have to tell me. And I didn't really want to know. I didn't want the details, but I wanted him, and he didn't want to tell me. And it ended up, yeah, I typed in something in the web browser. No, he's watching uh, pornography videos on, on the web, internet. I said, well, how did you get there? He says, well, it just came. I said, did you type anything in? Yeah, that's not a struggle. Typing in hot lingerie is not a struggle. There's no battle there. And, and this is something really important because there's a lot of people who want to get victory in this area, but we're not actually fighting it. We're giving in. That's not a struggle. Let's take another one. Anger. Oh, my point was I wanted him to actually be specific and actually say, no, I went and typed this into my browser. I waited till my wife was asleep and I went to the internet and I deliberately typed this into the, into the browser. Then I watched two people have sex and then he continued on with, what, with the rest of his actions that night. And he felt the guilt that God wanted him to feel because it was destructive to he and his marriage, who, and he loved his wife. You see, sin's not a bad topic. It's very practical. It's very helpful. This was creating a distance between he and his wife, and God wanted him to feel the guilt to mend the behavior. And it was him having to describe it that actually made him feel the guilt. Let me talk about another one. Some of you say, I've got an anger problem. Well, I've got a spitting problem. Are you going to let me get away with that? No, you got an anger problem. When, when men or women say, I've got an anger problem, no, you've got an immaturity problem. 
And I get it, you might be predisposed to anger or maybe you grew up in a home where you just yell a lot. Okay, so grow up. And when we have an anger problem, what we're really doing, if you want to be specific about that, I deliberately raised my voice to my wife to shut her down, to kill her argument, to destroy her argument so that I could have my own way. And so everyone's afraid to bring up my issues. That's the specifics on that. That's, that's a struggle. Or some of us might say, I have a hard time forgiving. No, you don't. You're just not forgiving. I struggle with forgiveness. No, Jesus struggled with forgiveness. Jesus struggled to keep his body on a cross, which would be his execution tool. Jesus struggled by not calling down 10,000 angels who would release him from his struggling, from his, from his battle and from his death. That's a struggle. Some of us just aren't forgiving. Do you know that by midnight tonight, you could forgive the people that you're bitter towards? People say, I can't. No, I can't. I don't want to or I don't know how. If you don't know how, we'll teach you how. You can go to freedom session, go to counselor, you can meet with your lead pastor. We'll teach you how. And I get it, no one wants to forgive. I don't want to forgive. You know what? I think that's why Jesus made it mandatory in the Christian faith. We don't actually have that option. It's sin not to forgive. Sin and trust aren't the same issue. But unforgiveness opens us up to a spirit of bitterness that's going to cloud our judgment, it's going to bring despair, it's going to wreak havoc in other areas of our lives, and we can forgive. I could walk through gossip. I could walk through lying. I could walk through deception. I could walk through theft. My point is, maybe we've made a mistake by just, God, forgive me my sins. My, what sins? All of my sins. And not actually walking through and being specific. Maybe you need a brother or sister in your life. If you're a male, you need a man. If you're a woman, you need a female in your life to actually be honest at that level. And in community groups this week, if you, you got walking through some of the discussion, maybe for the prayer time, divide into men and men, women groups, groups of three men, three women, and actually talk about some of the challenges and struggles you're having and actually pray for one another. Confess your sins to one another that you might be healed. It would be a very practical application of this message. I want to take a risk and I want to cover one other very sensitive issue because it's actually in this passage and it's the one is I'm fighting depression. Now depression is not sin, but David was depressed. David was experiencing significant depression and I know depression's a thing. The three people in our immediate family that have struggled with depression, I've had a small bout of depression that feels very much like, um, uh, what do you call it, when you're burnt out. I don't think it's as bad as depression, but didn't help me when I was going through it, but I know it's a real thing. I know there's biological, chemical realities to that, but the question is, which come first, the chemical imbalance or the depression? In David's case, he is dealing with a source-based depression. And, and, and uh, like anyone that's going through a depression or despair will have a chemical imbalance. Our emotions are simply chemical imbalances. The question is, did, did the chemical imbalance come first or did something happen in my life? Marriage falls apart, a sin or whatever, bitterness, etc. lose hope and despair, distance from God. Did that happen first and cause the chemical imbalance? Because if something, if it's source-based depression, in other words, there's an issue that caused it, then the chemical imbalance came, then Prozac won't work. It might work temporarily, but we've got to go and deal with the other issue. Obviously, if it's a chemical imbalance that causes it, let's fix it with chemicals and medication. I get all that. I'm not against, we're not against medication. We get all that. I hope you're hearing me. Don't send hate mail saying you think depression's always because of sin. I'm saying sometimes it can be. In this case, it was. Another illustration of that, a PTSD, because everyone's diagnosed with PTSD now. And if we diagnose everyone with post-traumatic stress disorder, then, every, then there is no real diagnosis of it. I know it's a real thing. 
Our daughter was involved in the 2007 Arvada shooting in Denver uh, at a YWAM base. Two people killed, another two wounded. She's holed up in a, in, a, in a closet. I get it, it's a real thing. It's not something small. There's a situation, uh, someone in, in one of our American cities that was taking freedom sessions, this is how I know this story, and uh, he had come back from the Iraq war and he had been diagnosed for two years with PTSD and he wasn't getting better in the counseling and he just happened to take freedom sessions just because he was on, not unemployed, he was on leave or whatever, and he had time, so he took this, this course. And what actually happened, it wasn't actually the, the distress uh, from Iraq, it was actually something way earlier. And in this case, he had been raised in the military by a military father, and he never felt good enough for his dad. His dad was one of those lift heavy objects and spit kind of guys, a, an alpha male, a he-man, and his emotions didn't get there. And so this boy had grown up and it was, it was basically raised as a, as, a, as a private rather than a son, and he never felt good enough for his, to be, uh, for his father. And when he came back from Iraq, He'd seen some horrendous things, and that just accentuated or magnified that he never felt good enough for his dad, and his dad didn't make fun of him, but made light of him. He should snap out of this. His dad had seen much worse, and so he felt worse, but it wasn't until he began to deal with some of the pain that he experienced growing up with his dad. Then, as he dealt with that, the PTSD was suddenly gone, and I'm not minimizing it. Of course, there's a few other. I'm oversimplifying it. I'm just saying that sometimes, if you're... If you're encountering despair, depression, PTSD, or some of these other things, don't just automatically accept the diagnosis and the prognosis without coming to God and asking, is there also a spiritual, or is there primarily a spiritual factor in it? And just so we're clear up on that, if you are on medication stuff, don't just throw away all your meds. Deal with stuff that's in your life, perhaps, and then ask your doctor, hey, can we, I'm starting to feel better, can I maybe go on a program, can we test it? If you're feeling some of that, feel loved, we support you, we love you, and we want to walk with you. I want to shift gears for a minute and talk about the solution from feeling distant from God, feeling abandoned by God. There's a solution for when we have things in our lives that are, that are holding us back from that meaningful relationship. And the first we've already talked about, turn first to God. Make it a discipline, turn first to God, not last to God. Secondly, engage the discipline of ruthless honesty with yourself and with God. If appropriate, I'm serious about this. If appropriate, describe the sin in your life in vivid detail to yourself. Be honest with yourself. Actually face what you're doing and your motives and your intentions behind it. If appropriate, um, describe the fear, the pain, and the injustice you feel. Push yourself to be specific, just like Pastor Mark ta taught us in Psalm chapter 3. Be specific. Push yourself. Don't filter out your emotions. God can handle them. It's not like he doesn't know that they're there. Pour them out to God. It's okay. David didn't do this here. He didn't pour out all the specifics. He did later in Psalm chapter 32 and 51. We'll get to those in 2023. Skip when you're with God, though. If you're feeling this, if you're feeling distant from God, you're feeling despair, skip the small talk. Skip the small talk. Get right to the point. Don't, don't worry about all those flowery prayers. But you've got to say all the right words. Just get right to God and talk to him about it. I'll tell you something that I do every day. We've got these journals, the Authentic Life journals, and in, in the journal every day, five out of seven days, at the very bottom, I go take a little inventory of my life, and I look at what are the strengths? What, what good did I do today? I write it down. Who hurt me today? I write that down. Sometimes no one hurt me. It's rare. <laughs> even the little things. Did someone tick you off? Write it down. They might not even meant to. They might not even known it. Write it down. Why would I do that? Because I want to forgive daily. And then I write down, who did I hurt today? 
or who would say that I hurt them, even if I feel justified? Why do I write that down? Because that causes me to make things right the next day. And then the last one is C, the closet. Is there anything in my life that's secret that I wouldn't want displayed on the big screen? Any secrets? Why do I want that? Trying to be honest. Search me, O Lord, and know my heart. And a lot of times we just don't take time to think. And as a result, sin can take root in our lives and affects our relationship, affects our accountants, countenance. This is just a little exercise that I do and encourage you to do so we can deal with that in our lives. I want to get to the best part of the message, verse 4, and it's to appeal to God's graciousness versus your best arguments of why he should forgive you. Listen to this. Return to me, Lord. Deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love, not my righteousness. And then he goes into his, his uh, but, but, but uh, before we get to that, uh, uh, Psalm chapter 139, three to six, listen to this. If, if you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are, are feared. Have you ever thought about how much integrity, how much internal strength it must take when you are perfectly righteous yourself to forgive another person? Think about that for a minute. When there's nothing in it for you, you are 100% righteous. You provide everything for another being and they, they turn on you. They think they know better or they just don't care. What would you do in that case? Would you forgive them? You're totally righteous. Would you forgive them? What if it cost you? What if it cost you? What if you had to pay the price for that sin? Would you forgive them then? Would you sacrifice your own child for that? If that was the price, would you do that? That's the God we've got. Do you know that we don't have a sin problem? We have an acknowledgement of sin problem. God, God paid the price for every sin you and I have ever committed and the ones that you're going to commit on Tuesday. We, everyone's, everyone's paid for Forgive me, Lord, based on your character, on your steadfast love. And then in a moment of weakness, he throws in his little rationale. For in death, there's no remembrance of you in Shoal who will praise you. In other words, forgive me because you're steadfast love. Plus, if you don't forgive me and I go down to Shoal, I can't praise you. He throws in his own rationale there. Do you think that impressed God? Oh, shoot. If, you go, if I don't forgive you, you're not going to praise me? God can raise up rocks to praise him. Appeal to God's graciousness versus your best arguments. You know what I've noticed? The more righteous a person becomes, the less grace they tend to have for other people. We become self-righteous and we begin to look down on people and think we're better than them. And yet I find God to be the exact opposite. Totally righteous, totally pure. Romans 5, 8, but God commanded his love towards us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's unbelievable. We call it the gospel. That's why we're so excited. That's why we have Village Church. That's why we try to share this message with as many people. That's why we encourage you to have a friend who doesn't know Jesus personally. That's why we encourage you to have them in your home. You be in their homes, play ball with them, drive and ride motorcycles with them, do underwater basket weaving with them, whatever it is to develop a kind of relationship because that's the message that the world is longing to hear. They just don't believe it's true. Perhaps because 
we become too churched and self-righteous. It's also interesting that David didn't fear God's discipline, he just feared his anger. But God wasn't impressed with his, his arguments. What's, what's your best argument for God to forgive you? Do you ever have some? What's your best argument? Back in 2015, we came to Village Church, maybe it was 2014, one of the first times I heard Mark preach, and he was preaching, I don't know what he was actually preaching on, um, but uh, he was using the illustration of his preschool daughter who was trying to tell him uh, what, what she feels she needed and, and why she didn't need to eat her, her Cheerios or her breakfast or whatever, whatever it was. And uh, so, so Mark puts his, the box of Cheerios down right in front of her and says, okay, read this. She says, Daddy, I'm only four, I can't read. Mark says, oh, you can't read, can you? You can't read the back of a Cheerios box, but you're gonna tell me what you think is best for your life. Eat your food, kid. Right then, I, right then and there, I knew this is the church I need to come to because they're gonna need Freedom Session for generations to come. <laughs> but isn't that kind of our logic with God? We're trying to convince God to do things, forgive us in the same kind of logic. He doesn't need our arguments. He just needs us to come to him. And I know I'm pushing the point because we don't come to him. We try to make things right. We try to, we try to prove to him that we're worth his forgiveness. He, no, he just wants us to come. And then lastly, deal with whatever's there. I'm not making light of sin. And we've got to come to God. We've also got to deal with it. You know, he met a woman who they were trying to stone him, uh, stone her, sorry. Everyone's trying to stone her for adultery. And, and uh, he said he ends up shaming, not shaming, but, but confronting the, the hypocrites with their own sin. They all leave. And uh, he asked the woman, he says, you know, who's there condemning you? She says, no one, sir. He says, neither do I condemn you, but go and stop sinning because the sin is ruining your life. Hope you can hear God's heart in that. As I wind down, we want to move into what we affectionately at Village Church and churches around the world call communion. It's common union. For those of you who know Jesus Christ personally, it's common union between you and God, you and Jesus, and you and each other. And what we do, really, communion is we have elements they're symbols, and we pass them around. And one of the reasons we do this is it proclaims the Lord's death until he comes. Proclaims the Lord's death and his resurrection. And that's my favorite part of David's psalm is his closing words, because that's what he's doing. He's declaring the Lord's power, his love, not his death and resurrection yet, but he's declaring the Lord's power and his goodness. And he, and he makes this shift in verse 8, depart from me. So David still feels the same. David still feels the pain. He still feels the insomnia, but he makes a Davidic shift. And he, and he takes his eyes and he shifts his focus from his own plight in the moment to the, plight, to the eternal God who has given the solutions. And he makes a decision, a faith decision, and he declares, depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard my weeping. I don't care what all of you say. I don't care if you're going to forgive me or not. The Lord has heard my weeping based on his character, on his steadfast love. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in the moment. Because to you, O Lord, I make my plea. Last time I led us into communion, it was an invitation. I don't know if you remember that. It was an invitation to do life together with Jesus. This time as we prepare for communion, it's an invitation for you to come to God. Come to Jesus and ask him two questions. 
Is there anything in my life you've been asking me to do that I haven't? And the second question is, is there anything in my life that I'm doing that you wish I wouldn't? So let's ask those two questions right now. Lord Jesus, is there anything in my life that you've been asking me to do that I haven't? It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not a Christian. God listens to all of our prayers, and he will speak to us. Is there anything that you've been asking me to do that I'm not? Secondly, is there anything I'm doing in my life that you wish I wouldn't, that you think is unhealthy for me, for those people around me? And now you've got a decision to make. You will either ask God to forgive you for that and invite him into your heart if you're not a Christian and ask him to fill your soul with his love and his presence. Or you will walk out of here feeling guilty and have to bury the guilt to get on with your day. If you're a Christian, you're in the same boat. It's just that you'll go to heaven when you die. But we've got a few more years to live here on earth. So let me lead you in two additional prayers. If you're not a Christian and you would mean this in your heart, this could be your prayer. Lord Jesus, today I recognize and I'm willing to face that there are mistakes, struggles, sins in my life, my bad. I realize these are also offenses against you because you love me and you want to be close to me. So I'm sorry. And I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to apply the blood that you shed on the cross to my account and fill me with your Holy Spirit. I don't know what it'll mean but the best I can, I will follow you as you lead me. If you are a Christian, the same prayer. Jesus, I'm sorry. I live a fast-paced life, and I don't take the time to factor in ways that I've offended you, hurt you, hurt others. I'm sorry. I've thought that I was better than others. I've gossiped. I've lied, lusted held unforgiveness towards others. When I say it that way, it looks a little uglier. So I need you as a savior today. I ask you to forgive me. Apply your blood to my account. Wash me clean and fill me with your Holy Spirit. What's going to happen as the band comes back out is we're going to pass around the communion elements and what will happen is there'll be two trays, one with some bread or crackers. They'll be gluten-free because we want all of us to be able to participate. And then following that, right away, will come a little bowl of juice. 
and we invite you, these are the elements, the, the, the bread represents the body of our Lord Jesus Christ that he sacrificed for us. The juice represents the blood of Jesus which covers our sins. And so we invite you to take a, a cracker. If you know Jesus personally, and maybe you just have known him personally for 20 seconds, I invite you to take it, take a bread, dip it in the juice, and when you're ready, partake, enjoy it, and we are declaring the love of Jesus, the forgiveness of Jesus, and the power of Jesus to guide and lead our lives, having communion with each other.